Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, and most times ridiculous. Special thanks as usual to one of our top contributing patrons today, Cody. Thank you as always for your support. Therapist Next Door is 100% listener funded and commits that we will never work with advertisers. Mm-mm-mm. We don't, mm-mm, indeed, we don't believe that it is our business or our job to tell you what kind of mattress to buy or encourage you to give money to an exploitative therapy service. As we believe that labor should be paid, we ask that listeners who are able to contribute, contribute what they can so that we can continue to be a platform to clinicians who further destigmatize mental health and de mystify therapy so that being said every episode we thank one of our top contributing patrons cody thanks again uh learn more Ooh. about perks and way to support joanna who is me and sarah at uh, patreon.com slash tnd podcast that's patreon.com slash t-n-d-p-o-d-c-a-s-t for easy access visit our instagram at tnd pod and Find the link in our bio. So, Sarah, let's get on to our show. This week, we welcome Robin Tamanaha, who works as a therapist and podcaster. Yes. Welcome, everyone, to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession. Or, or helping pr- profession adjacent, Joanna, mm, asking yes. questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers. And I know in the past I've said my style is like a celebrity who got caught on Sunday by the paparazzi going to get coffee. Mm-hmm. I've said that before, right? Mm-hmm. But I realized recently that my real style is just infant. Yes. Which is just like, I want to wear all of the clothes that my infant child wears because they look comfortable and they've got loud patterns and the pants are great. And he's got the cutest jackets. Please can I get some? So if we were to have like a higher power walk in the room, like a parent would to a, to- a baby and be like, yeah, yeah. pick your outfit, the higher power would just like offer you an amalgamation of clothing and shoes and probably like some booties and some hats. And you'd be like, oh, I pick it. This I pick all of it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even a big fan of socks or shoes. So like, I mean, I should have known from the beginning that that's what but yeah like I mean I'm wearing a sweatshirt and uh sweatpants it is Sunday but like that's normally what I wear so mm-hmm. that's usually like what he wears so I just like that's so cu- everything's so cute I'm like could I have this in an adult like shirt yeah give me a Burt's Bees adult sweater oh right? my gosh don't even with the Burt's Bees uh <laughs> And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a strit. I'm a cishet white woman and my pronouns are she, her. And I just bought my first pair of wide-legged jeans because I don't want to be made fun of by Gen Z anymore. (laughs) Congratulations. They are high-waisted as hell and I love them. They are... did not think I could be comfortable in jeans again. I've been wearing skinny jeans since 2004. I'm I'm just beyond happy to be wearing these. That's so nice. These, I do feel like I do feel like I am stepping out of 1975 like, and I love it. 
very comfortable. I get it. I get why we were being made fun of for wearing skinny jeans. <laughs> I, uh, I actually, this morning was having like a kind of crisis thinking about jeans and like, mm-hmm. what do I do if it's not tapered at my leg? You know? But, and so I like, I, I really, mm-hmm. I Googled today, comfortable pants that aren't jeans. Like seriously, that's something I Googled this morning while I was walking mm-hmm. the dog. I do think jeans are on their way out. Yeah. Which would be very cool. And Joanna, we've talked about, you know, we yes. have important conversations. We've talked about the need for a pant that's warm like jeans, but comfortable like sweatpants. Yes, absolutely. And mm-hmm. yeah, like as as the holiday season is coming closer and I have to like be around people more, I'm like, oh, I can't just wear sweatpants everywhere because like my nice sweatpants, you know, I have like a pair of nice joggers mm-hmm. and like those are nice, but like you know, they only so you want to be so able far. to like go to like a holiday dinner in these sweats, but you want to be yes. like me and also be able to like sit on the floor and put together your holiday Lego sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sitting uh, on the floor like, is a must yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being warm is. A, yeah. So it's, it's also a journey I'm, I'm going to embark on. And I was like, I think I have to go to a store, Ugh. you know, can you come over next week and we can do what I've been doing every night and do Legos, uh, watching Buffy on my laptop. Yes. <laughs> A hundred percent. I can do that. Yes. Okay, That'll be good. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, I'm also like, I'm on the floor, I'm rolling around, I'm, I'm running, you know, like I'm walking. Well, you know what? I hope that I hope the people are listening and they, you know, start to make these changes because we're tired. We're tired of jeans. <laughs> Skinny jeans are so uncomfortable. They are so uncomfortable. They look nice with a big sweater, but how many big sweaters can you wear without, I mean, you can wear plenty. We I don't ever want to suggest that you yeah. can limit. No, no more skinny jeans. <laughs> Don't no limit your sweaters. sweaters. No, limit your skinny jeans. And thank you and good night. Okay. Uh, how uh, how clean are your floors? My floors are so clean. And as usual, I don't remember if I made any mistakes. During okay. So life. I've been taking notes. Oh, uh, no. So Wait, I do. No, you your didn't. Your do, <laughs> yeah. Of my own. I mean, like if you made a mistake, I'd also take a note of it. Just like um, Sarah's fuck ups. <laughs> they're all mine. Today. They're basically <laughs> things that I, for we like, couldn't remember we couldn't think of saying oh, so like they might back. be a little bit farther back so the one thing i don't <laughs> what it was for but the but but we were looking for samuel barber's adagio for strings so that was something that we referenced in a previous I, episode i didn't right uh yeah i think i did because okay. it was about like <laughs> private ryan or something uh and we had like a hard time coming up with it mm-hmm. uh the mm-hmm. other thing i wrote down here was hershey kisses um mm-hmm. I think I guess I just wanted to give an update on the bag of 350 Hershey Kisses that I have. It's gone. I did only eat like 10 of them. So, uh, I mean, not good that you only got 10. Yeah. Well, no, I I purposely was like, eh. I tried putting them in peanut butter. No, don't do that. Hershey chocolate isn't good, right? Yeah, it's not good. No. I'm I'm on a Justin's uh, peanut butter cup kick, which I think I was two months ago. So I do like Justin's. And the only one that they have in the aisle at Giant these days is like the dark chocolate peanut butter ones. And I'm like really getting into dark chocolate. Yeah. I mean, I like those, but the milk chocolate ones are the best. I'm like, I have to keep Mm -hmm. buying these. So they stock them, you know, like that's what my uh, purpose in life is, I guess. That's so good. I I went to buy, I went to grab a Justin's peanut butter cup and it was the Justin's almond butter. And I was like, "Eh." and I still threw it in the cart anyway, because it's the only two products. (laughs) Every time I go to the store, I pick up a bag of Justin's. They're so good. They Justin's did not pay us for this at all. It's just 
I know we had that whole thing in the beginning where we're like, we're not going to do it, but like, we're not, it's just like, we love our Justin's. (laughs) They also have like honey almond butter. It's really good. Oh, anyway, she probably get in contact. Yeah. Only if we want to. All right. Well, uh, stay tuned for our lesson after a quick break. And now it's time for our lesson. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good, bad, or in between, in order to give context for the field that our guest works in. Joanna, we have one source today. It is the History of Bipolar Disorder by Angela Nelson via WebMD.com. Only go on WebMD for articles. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. Um, Okay. Content warning, there are a brief mention of harm and killing of people with mental illness. All right, Joanna, we're going to talk about the, we're going to talk about bipolar disorder throughout Western history. Tell me. Aratius of Cappadocia began the process of detailing symptoms in the medical field as early as the first century in Greece. His notes on the link between mania and depression, not what they were called before, went largely unnoticed for many centuries. The ancient Greeks and Romans were responsible for the terms mania and melancholia. We know that word, mm-hmm. which are now the modern day manic and depressive. They even discovered that using lithium salts in baths calmed manic people, people, excuse me, people that were manic and lifted the spirits of depressed people, which is so amazing because today lithium is a very common treatment for people with bipolar disorder. It's really, I would wonder how they like found these lithium salts. Oh, maybe we can put that on the list. All right. The Greek philosopher Aristotle not only acknowledged melancholy as a condition, but cited it as the inspiration for the great artists of his time. It was common during this time for people across the globe to be executed for having bipolar disorder and other mental conditions. As the study of medicine advanced, strict religious dogma stated that these people were possessed by demons and should therefore be put to death. And every history lesson we do comes back to this this funky time, uh, like what we like to call the dark ages, because we think we weren't as enlightened where we were putting yeah. people to death and yeah. um, moralizing mental health. Mm-hmm. All right. 17th century. In the 17th century, Robert Burton wrote the book, The Anatomy of Melancholy, which addressed the issue of treating melancholy using music and dance. Yeah. It expands deeply into the symptoms and treatments of what's now known as major depressive disorder. Later that century, Theophilus Bonnet published a great work entitled Sepuchertum, a text that drew from his experience performing 3,000 autopsies. In it, he linked mania and melancholy to a condition called Manico Melancholicus. (laughs) That name didn't stick, which I'm shocked. This was a substantial step in diagnosing the disorder because mania and depression were most often considered separate disorders. And this was the first time that this uh, this character, this Bonnet, made this link. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the 19th century uh, with, with French psychiatrist Jean-Pierre Felray. I'm just really excited about it. Published an article in 1851 describing what he called la folie séculaire which translates to circular insanity. The article details people switching through severe depression and manic excitement and is considered to be the first documented diagnosis of bipolar disorder. In addition to making the first diagnosis, Falray also noticed the genetic connection in bipolar disorder, something that medical professionals still support to this day. Moving on in history to the 20th century and the history of bipolar changed with Emile Krapelin, 
a German psychiatrist who broke away from Sigmund Freud's theory that society and the suppression of desires played a large role in mental illness. Kraepelin recognized biological causes of mental illnesses and is believed to be the first person to seriously study these illnesses. In his book, Manic Depressive Insanity and Paranoia, written in 1921, he detailed the difference between manic depressive and praecox, which is known as, which is now known as schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. The term bipolar means two poles, signifying the polar opposites of mania and depression. The term first appeared in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM, in its third revision in 1980. It was that revision that did away with the term mania to avoid calling patients maniacs. And and remembering that we love the DSM-3 from 1980 because not only did it add uh, bipolar disorder and PTSD, also the removal of homosexuality as a mental illness. Yep. Big year. Yeah. Well, uh, join us after the break as we talk to our guest for today. Robin Tamanaha is a Japanese American licensed marriage and family therapist in Orange County, California. She has been a therapist for almost 10 years. 10 years and has her own private practice where she specializes in helping people who are living with bipolar disorder hop into the driver's seat, take control of extreme mood changes, and live fulfilling and balanced life. She also helps to build community by running a clinical consultation group for Asian American and Pacific Islander therapists who reside throughout the U.S. In addition to her role as a therapist, she is a creator and host of two podcasts, Books Between Sessions podcast and Open Mind Night podcast. Her mission with both of her podcasts is to help people not feel so alone in their experience with mental health and mental illness. Welcome, Robin. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for being here. (laughs) We are so happy to have you. Yeah. I feel like also very happy to talk about bipolar disorder just because there's so much stigma around it there definitely is yeah I could talk about this all day it's my passion so (laughs) well we'd love to jump right into that Yeah, we can like (laughs) let's go can you tell us about how bipolar disorder uh, treating it first came into your purview and you know how that's developed over the years yeah it's actually very interesting for me it was um kind of organic in a way. I think us therapists sometimes go into the field, at least for me, it was, I came into the field thinking I was going to do one thing and then it actually turned into something else. Um, I actually thought I'd be working with like couples and doing couples work. But when I first started as a therapist, I worked at this nonprofit and I had like a lot of like um, severe cases, one of which included bipolar disorder. And um, I felt very comfortable um, with it. And my supervisors were kind of confused, uh, because as a newbie therapist was something, you know, pretty intensive and chronic, at least the level that I had with my cases, they were like, okay, you're not, you know, you're not too scared. You seem really comfortable and talking with them and everything. And I didn't disclose at the time, um, because I didn't really know how much to share to supervisors, but there is essentially a personal connection for me with bipolar disorder, actually a family member. Um, so for me, I was like, well, it's Tuesday, I don't know, you know, and I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't anything, you know, so it felt, I think, in a way, natural because of that. And it kind of helped me pick up on some red flags that maybe a newbie therapist wouldn't necessarily pick up on and also really help um, establish rapport with them. So I kind of went with it. And I got more and more cases of bipolar disorder. 
they were handed to me because <laughs> they're like, you feel, you feel fine with this, you know? And then um, I just continued throughout the years. And then essentially towards the end um, of being like a, an associate or an intern before my licensure, I thought, well, I always knew I was going to do private practice. And I, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to focus on bipolar disorder because I know there's a need, especially in the private practice world where not too, there's not too many clinicians that put it out there like bipolar disorder, come on, you know? <laughs> so that's essentially what, what I did. And I just kind of ran with it and I've had my private practice since 2018 and um, it's been great. And Congrats. that's my main, yeah. my main focus. So, yeah. That's so cool. I'm so glad that you're able to <laughs> offer that. Cause I do think even sometimes clinicians shy away um, from that diagnosis for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It looks, it looks a little different in the private practice world. I think um, like when I worked in nonprofit and agency, it was very much like more bipolar one, you know, definitely more intensive, um, more, you know, psychiatric hospitalizations. I had the clients who were in and out of psychiatric, but what I've noticed since being in private practices, it's a little more bipolar two. Um, so not, it's still difficult to experience for the clients, but as far as um, impairment and all that, it looks quite different. So that's, that's been interesting too. Yeah. And there's, I can imagine a lot of misdiagnosis with bipolar mm-hmm. too, also oh potentially showing up as ADHD or, um, I mean, a lot of things Anxiety. that people could yeah. think that they are struggling yeah. with. Yes. Yeah. I think whenever somebody calls in, like I'm, that's always in the back of my mind, I think too, especially with depression. So like bipolar two usually gets misdiagnosed as major depression because that's when they're calling in when they're experiencing hypomania. It's like, fine, you know, and you know, and so whenever I get somebody who is calling in saying, well, I'm experiencing depression, I have depression. Um, when I do meet with them, I'm actually also assessing for bipolar two um, and ADHD or ruling out, um, you know, trauma. Cause sometimes that, that yeah. looks um, similar. So there's always a bunch of things in the back of my mind, but it's so interesting too, how like, yeah, there is a lot of, um, a lot of misdiagnosis, unfortunately. And I think a lot of people go, especially those that have bipolar two, go many years without being uh, properly diagnosed. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned that part too, about hypomania, about folks just kind of being like, like, yeah, because we are in such a high uh, pressure and performance culture too, that that can sometimes just be felt as like, oh no, I'm just really good at this. I'm just really good at my job. I'm just really good at entertaining. I'm really good at socializing. Can you, for the layperson, explain some of how bipolar, excuse me, bipolar two presents that might be surprising for people? Yeah, it's pretty mild. I think with bipolar two, the interesting thing is there's no impairment, at least with the hypomania. And these, so there is a certain point where it's like they're maybe MVP at their job, or I'm, I'm in Orange County and it's very, very high achieving here. And so these are the ones that are working a lot. These are executives, CEOs, people that like, I think when people think of bipolar disorder, they usually think maybe bipolar one and not bipolar two. Um, But even those with bipolar one can be quite successful. So I think that's one big thing that not a lot of people know about is there are very high achieving, successful people in their field or academia um, that actually may have bipolar two. So from a functional level, they got it. Right. And there may be times where they're like, 
okay, maybe that person woke up on the wrong side of the bed. They seem a little more irritable than usual, which it's kind of the budding of a, of a hypomania episode. And then it gets to the point where it's just irritability and it's actually very hard to get things done and there's not too much sleep. When it comes to the functioning though, if anything is impaired, it's when they're in the depressive episode. So that's usually why it gets misdiagnosed with depression. Um, as opposed to with the hypomania, there is, there is no, it, it feels a lot and it is very distressing, but interestingly, it's not impairing for bipolar two. And just also for the layperson, can you describe just a little bit of the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two? Mm-hmm. So the impairment is one. So impairment versus, um, you know, no impairment, but also, so with, with bipolar one, interestingly, mania, the mania is required for a diagnosis, but not always the depression. So someone, I mean, I think a lot of people think highs and lows when it comes to, to bipolar disorder, but actually for bipolar one, it's like, if they're experiencing the mania, you know, then they, they would meet criteria for bipolar one. And there's some, maybe not always, um, you know, hallucinations, paranoia, all of that. Um, it actually becomes quite difficult to, to do their work or to be in their relationships or sometimes their, how they take care of themselves, like really, really declines, like the, their self-care. As opposed to bipolar two, there's the depression actually, if we look at the lifetime of bipolar two, the depression actually makes up the majority of it. And there's bits of hypomania and actually a lot of neutral, like no episode, so, which is why it, it does go misdiagnosed or just not really recognized, I feel like. And then of course, you know, the hospitalizations don't really always happen with bipolar two. Um, so those are kind of like the main, the main differences. We look at the timeline of it. How long did these symptoms occur? How much is it affecting your life and how you take care of yourself? I'm also thinking about how we maybe have trouble recognizing mania too, because like in our like collective conscious mania means one thing, but it can like express itself in a lot of, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm thinking of mania as like, uh, like a Tom and Jerry cartoon, I feel like is the like general consensus, but it can look a lot, a lot different from that. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the things are unique to actually the person. Like when I meet with clients, um, I talk about the symptoms and then what they relate to and how it kind of shows up for them. Like, does it feel like you're having so many thoughts in your head that it's difficult to keep track of? You know, do you find that you're super, super irritable or you're feeling like extreme high, like on top of the world, cloud nine, do you notice that you jump task from task, but different than ADHD? Um, so that's where we had to have yeah. to really start piecing it apart. Thoughts of death is actually common for both bipolar one and actually bipolar two. So I'm always assessing for, you know, suicidality, but it's, so we look at the symptoms, but then when I work with clients, I'm like, how do you, how does this show up for you? Like, how do you actually experience it? Does it feel like you have a ball of fire inside of you? Do you feel like that intense emotion of just like anger that comes overcomes you, you know, or with bipolar two with more hypomania, it's like, are you noticing that there's little things that you wouldn't normally get irritated about that you, that you actually are? Like maybe it was that driver on the road or somebody in the store. And all of a sudden it's sticking with you for the rest of the day. Then I'm like, okay, we need to talk because is this a budding episode? This is uncharacteristic for you. And for both mania and hypomania, I always say like, 
is this something that is out of characteristic for what you usually experience or what you would usually do? I, I love that invitation to uh, allow people to not punish themselves for this, uh, for like actions maybe of like screaming at someone in the grocery store line and like actually finding accountability through like diagnostically speaking, like instead of like internalizing it via shame, just like, okay, this is, this is a clue, right? This is an indicator that this is actually something broader that I'm dealing with. And it seems like you offer that to people uh, and, and not in a shame-based way, which is definitely what people, especially with bipolar one, need because of the shame that can come after a manic episode. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's so many like different experiences for individuals who live with this. There's the one when they talk about it, people may like Ew, like retract, right? Whether it's professionals or people in their personal life, and then there's that like internal shame and stigma. Um, mm -hmm. I talk with a lot of with clients about like how it just almost not necessarily trauma from experiencing an episode, but just how they feel about themselves now and their identity. And I, and I talk very like candidly and open about it, which I think in general helps clients feel comfortable because I'm not, I'm not trying to make them feel bad. You know, I, I, I do it in such a casual way. Like we're having just this regular conversation. It just so happens to be centered around like their experience, um, you know, and their potential symptoms. And I think, even through now, like with this pandemic, I do a lot of video um, sessions, like we can still, you know, convey that like non-judgmental stance and that openness to like, let's just talk about it. You know, I'm here to help. Let's piece it apart together. I don't know if anybody's ever done this before, you know, and I think a lot of clients are very like welcoming, like they, they like that. And there have been some who said to me like, well, like this doesn't, you know, like this is the first time that I've talked to somebody about it. And like, I don't feel weird. Like, I don't feel like I bothered somebody, you know, I don't feel bad about this. And we work through some of the embarrassment that they feel in general about it um, and what their experience is. But at least with me, what I've been told is like, yeah, I don't I actually walk away feeling a little bit better just talking about this. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much stigma. I can't I mean, I can't imagine the heaviness that it brings and like just the anxiety of not being able to tell people because you're not, you don't know what their reaction will be. And it's always up to the person. Like I, I tell them like who, you know, who are your safe people or people that you feel super comfortable with that you, you'd want to share, you know, with, um, and it's okay. You, you get to decide who you share and, and who you don't, you know, with, and, and I always remind my clients. And when I talk about like, you know, your, their whole identity, in a sense, like this is one part of it. You know, I think I'm also like a lot of people come to me because they want to really make sure this is the diagnosis or um, they're just kind of unsure of what it may be. And they have in mind that it might be bipolar. And even those that like are coming into me like, okay, let's get into it. I want to know what this is. I'm still very mindful about how I talk about it because I know for some diagnoses, especially bipolar disorder, once that is said, there is like, it's like this, it gets real moment or like when they get prescribed medication for it, that's another, it gets real moment where it's like, oh my gosh, so this is what it is. And even if they're like coming in, like really wanting it, you know, to know and all that, I, I really am like, I emphasize like, this isn't all of you though. This is a part of your identity, but it is not all of what encompasses you. And the, you don't have to be defined by this. And I think there are, are a lot too that are like, well, this is uh, my life. This is a life sentence. And here's what it is, you know? And I say, no, this can be managed. 
you know, you can live a successful and meaningful life, even though this is what you're experiencing. And even though this is, you know, your diagnosis. So there's so much, even just like self stigma, um, that happens with, with many who go through this. And it's a lot to process. Yeah. I mean, bipolar is an adjective, uh, not a great one. I would appreciate it if it wasn't, but yeah, I can understand like taking that on as like a, this is part of like my person out, this is part of my person, this adjective. Yeah. I even do some where I reflect back and like past episodes or say there was a hospitalization or something where they're like, Oh my gosh, I feel really embarrassed about what I did. Or I did something I wouldn't normally do, you know, and there were consequences for that. Or people are looking at me a certain way. I do a lot of reworking and processing with them about that because it's interesting now where we also process like past episodes and then feeling like that is them now is that's what's going to happen in the future. Like, you know, and I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be that way. We're going to take this as data and, and information moving forward on how to prepare, you know, so that maybe hopefully we can prevent that from happening or prevent it from happening more often. Can you talk a little bit about the specific needs of folks that come to your practice? You had mentioned or- Orange County and like high achieving folks. Can you talk a little bit more about what needs they have? Yeah, I'm, I'm located in Orange County. Um, I do have clients as far as like the Bay Area, like San Fran. Um, actually. But for me, I think for those, if it's specific to bipolar disorder, essentially they're just, there's a lot of help me understand, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. And at the same time, they're like, and also like, help me and like, kind of what, what can I do? Like, what can things, you know, look like now? So there's a lot of like, I'd like to know some, you know, information because in the past, maybe I've had therapists who just smile and nod and they validate, but I'm not really getting anywhere. So there's that. And then also like, how can I manage what I'm experiencing? You know, I feel very defeated right now, you know, or this is impacting my, my relationships. Interestingly, I've also had the opposite. <clears throat> and this has have, have been actually also during the pandemic, uh, loved ones and, and um, family members of people who are diagnosed with bipolar disorder that actually come to me for therapy. So in that mm-hmm. sense, it's interesting because it looks a little different because they're also like to help me understand, you know, some gen- general education and also how do I manage the stress of this? So it's interesting because during the pandemic, it's shifted to where like, oh, now I'm getting people who are also like on the other end of it, which um, has been really, really cool, you know, to do. And they're like, you know, I'm coming to you because, you know, you, you of course are familiar, you know, and experience with this. Um, and, you know, I have a, I have a husband or have a, you know, a sibling um, that, you know, was recently diagnosed or has been diagnosed and it's just become so much. It's interesting, I think. And I, I faced this when I when, when I went from agency to private practice where I'm like, I do like all these things, like, oh, all. <laughs> and then it just kind of just comes down to what it seems to be is the basics, which is just information, really listening and seeing what it is they would like help with and how. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I first started private practice, I felt like, do I need to solve everything? You know, or, oh my gosh, I'm in like the big leagues now because I'm in private practice, not like nonprofit agency world. And it's still like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, the same, the same therapist, you know? And I think for those that are living with bipolar disorder, they're not always listened to, you know? So even that in a sense is like huge. 
just, and not trying to just tell them what to do. It's, it's, you know, let's work together on this, but ultimately like, I want to understand your story and what this looks like for you and actually how you uniquely experience these symptoms. Cause for everyone, it might be a little bit different. Yeah. I, I'm so grateful to you that these folks get this beautiful opportunity to both learn and unlearn misinformation. So just thank you for offering Mm -hmm. that to people. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking about like my own personal experience, because you saying that you have this, you know, familial connection with bipolar disorder, you know, I, I have a familial connection with addiction, but I could also never see myself working with active addiction, but I will fill my practice with family members and loved ones of folks who have somebody going through active addiction. So I can really like feel that calling, like very similar to just like, not only is it, you know, is there like, I've healed enough that I can like support these folks, but I'm also just very excited to like, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, like you were talking about just like learning and unlearning stuff that they have been, that has been taught to them by media or by, by physicians and clinicians who maybe have their own stigma they need to work through. So just like thinking about this opportunity to just help people completely heal from their misinformation and fill it with all of this important information that can help everybody heal. I think fortunately it's starting to come around. Hopefully it continues to do so. I know at least in the media when I think of like, oh gosh, like what used to be portrayed when it came to bipolar disorder, you know, and um, that's kind of probably where the stigma started. And then, and then too, now I think I know there's more and more big name people that are coming forward with their mental health struggles or mental illness struggles. So I think that's helpful. I think the more people talk about it and just talk about it openly, I think Mm -hmm. will help others also uh, do the same as opposed to just suffering in silence or just feeling super defeated, like there's nothing I can do when really like actually bipolar disorder is manageable hundred percent. Yeah. I think it's great jumping back to something you said that you give your clients agency about like, you know, this is a warning sign. So now I know what to do because I feel like a lot of clients who I've talked to who have this diagnosis, it just feels like now I can't control anything in my life nothing is controllable when it is. Yeah. With my clients, I go through like, um, not like necessarily, I I think people or what I've read in books and everything was like kind of red flags, green flags type of thing, you know, like warning signs versus, you know, not warning signs. Um, but then there's also this middle ground. I call them kind of like yellow, orange flags. And I go over this with my clients and these are kind of like the yellow flags are kind of like the triggers. And then the orange flags are the like, maybe the start of an episode <laughs> that I keep mm-hmm. that, you know, so I go through all the, all the different color flags, um, you know, with my clients to really help build that a- awareness and also for them to help, you know, to be able to take agency, to be able to like keep track of things because that middle piece is usually missing. It's kind of like, I was fine. And then boom episode, but then there were like so many things in between. Yeah. So I help my clients kind of get a sense of that middle ground, which is easier to do during depression than hypomania is very, very hard. Sometimes the more I get to, I get to know my clients and the more like we work together, I can actually see it transform in front of me. Yeah. So I actually will be like, I'll call out, be like, Hey, like, especially once I know them for a little bit, I'm like, Hey, like I'm noticing, like, you kind of feel different today. Am I accurate on that? Like, does it feel like you feel different? Cause I'm noticing something different here, you know? Cause essentially like for me, each session I do with clients, they don't know it, but in the back of my head, I'm doing an MSC. I'm doing like a mental status exam, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I'm also helping them kind of build 
um, build that awareness, which um, doesn't always happen, for, may not always happen for them, like out, you know, in, in real life, unless they have like a loved one or a friend who's like, huh, and then actually says something, you know, but I kind of, my role too, I feel like is to help kind of bridge that gap for them. So then we can start catching things earlier because once the episode starts, it's like, all right, here we, you know, here we go, you know, but I'd, I'd like to catch it like beforehand, like with the triggers or like the holiday seasons, you know, yeah. when the time of this reporting is, is coming up. Right. So I'm talking a lot with clients about that. We got the weather change this daylight savings time has been, we've seen all the memes, right. But the daylight mm-hmm. savings. Times and how, yeah, I feel like, like this, especially like this year, it's it been so like bad. a wall, like, even yeah. here in Pennsylvania, it's now winter uh, temperatures. Yeah. Like it, here, yeah. it's yeah. so it's so dark by like five, and I'm like, okay, you know, and that's gonna throw off our circadian rhythm, which is like huge for bipolar disorder. And then we got this like holiday stress coming up, or who knows what anniversary, you know. And so I also have these like kind of pre conversations with clients. Okay, this is coming yeah. up. Like, let's what are we gonna talk about next time? Just you know, just to help out. Um, so I, I just, my goal, even for those that I see who have bipolar disorder, which is chronic is for them to still see me less often. Like we yeah, start weekly in the beginning, but I, even with them, I'm like, let's, let's titrate to like every two weeks, three weeks at some point, because I also don't want to hold them back from growth. Like, I feel like it is very much possible and they can do it. Um, so I'm just, those are the things I'm kind of in the beginning. I'm like, okay. Let's, let's get a sense of all these things to kind of prep. And I, I want to help you also help you like do my job in, in a sense. I love this idea of like essentially mapping out triggers and symptoms and, you know, body cycles. And like, you're talking about like circadian rhythm and just aligning it with our calendar. And then it, you can transfer like hopefully from, Oh, I can't believe this happened again. It surprised me too. Like, Oh, I know what's coming. <laughs> like let's, let's prepare as much as possible. Oh, there's so much power that's given. Yeah. 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 Sometimes at some point they're like, okay, wait, this is coming. Or wait a minute. I feel this. Does this mean this? So I'm like, okay, we're there. You're in that point now where you're like, your gears are going and you're now trying to like prep, you know, which is really cool to see. I I feel like, because when I reflect, and I always say with them, like, you know, before you saw me or like a year ago, like, did you think this was possible that you'd be like a more attuned and be like, huh? They're like, no. I would have just been going per usual, you know? <laughs> oh, that's yeah. so nice. That's what so a cool nice. opportunity. <laughs> to like also give somebody the ability to give themselves compassion by accepting this limitation, but just, it's like, this is just how I am. It's not because I, I feel like, especially with the, just the negative stigma of bipolar disorder to be like, oh, here it goes again, you know, instead of being like, no, this is something that I, that I'm, I can take care of myself with, mm-hmm. um, for, I don't, Mm-hmm. know if that sentence worked, but perfect. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, what's pushed so often is like the stigma and also like, oh my gosh, you know, needing help, which is true, you know? And, and then I, you know, discuss, you know, with, with my clients and some of it's more individualistic, but um, the positives, you know, too, I feel like for every diagnosis, there's, there's these little things, you know, that they have that maybe others don't, you know, and anything with bipolar disorder, there is sometimes the creativity, like I work with a lot of high creatives, like executives, mm, like entrepreneurs, yeah. like those type of things. Um, but then also like, wow, like you also have like this, you're really, really in tune to emotion, you know? And I notice with a lot of mine, they're so like compassionate towards others, 
you know, mm-hmm. and very, very caring to other people, you know, not to say that others, are, others aren't, but I'm like, at some point, sometimes for them, it's pretty heightened, you know, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty amazing that you have that, you know, within you, you know, so if we can find these also little like, you know, intricacies about them, you know, that are positive, not just like kind of the stigmatizing ones that are put out there so often, that also, I think helps with the acceptance like yeah. of the diagnosis, not that right or wrong or should or shouldn't be, but just like, this is like your experience, you know, but it doesn't mean that everything is bad, you know, or everything about you is bad. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the anxiety I experienced and like, the good thing is that I'm like hyper prepared for everything. Um, yeah. Which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Similar. <laughs> Yeah, similarly, Joanna, I've like gone from in the past year thinking that, oh, you know, if I'm hunkering down, if I'm getting quiet, or if I'm reaching out to people less, that's, you know, I'm depressed. And that means I need to like make an adjustment. But now I'm like, oh, wait, no, I'm resting, I'm getting comfy, I'm not extending and expand, expending energy on things that are really not serving me right now. And it's actually like healing. (laughs) So there's a lot of just really helpful reframing that can go into this. Um, Mm -hmm. but it seems like, like, like Robin, you had said, there's just like more in the zeitgeist now. Like we're really talking about it. We're getting better representation and we're not feeling shame for resting and for healing ourselves as much. Um, you know, if we have access to the time to do it and I love the direction we're heading in (laughs) for this one thing. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, um, bipolar two, and especially those, you know, more here in SoCal, I say, you know, you can be productive, but also in a way that is managed. And I think that is a huge <laughs> thing for people to say, yeah. with, you know, because they're used to just like, you know, yeah. going on all cylinders here. Um, but then it takes over to the point where it's like, they're so irritable or it's actually very hard to get things done. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there can be a balance. Like you can be successful. You can get things done, but in a way that is more contained, you know? And so I talk with them a, lo- a lot about, about that, but it's hard now. Like, you know, high achievers, you know, everyone you know, wanting to succeed. I don't know what we see on social, social media about what people are doing. There's a lot of comparison, you know, going on or the need that I need to do, you know, I need to do more or I should be doing this. Or I'm just going to work, 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 you know, and it's like, it doesn't have to be, you know, that way you can also like live your personal life and spend time with people and have like what you were saying, Sarah, like to have times of rest and self-care that is okay. But I feel like sometimes people need like the permission to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have these discussions with them, not to give them permission, but to say like, Hey, it's okay. You don't have to be productive, like 24 seven. It's fine. You know? Yeah. And, and letting them know that, I mean, this, there is some normalcy with managers being supportive of time off, but like, generally speaking, a boss and a manager is not going to like tell you to stop, you know, hustling. It is not going to tell you to stop being overproductive. So like even in your sessions, Robin, I'm hearing that you, you know, like will normalize that, like you kind of have to be the one to tell you to stop, to manage that. (laughs) Yeah. I think for those who are like employed, like in a company, it's like, especially with the the hypomania where it's kind of budding, it's like, you're off the clock now though. You're still working, you know, Mm -hmm. or because I work with so many like entrepreneurs, I'm like, you're your own boss. I was like, so the way that, you know, you kind of are, you know, and I get a little bit confrontational with my clients, the way you are kind of right now with yourself, would you want you as a boss right now? And they're like, maybe not, <laughs> you know, so I kind of, you know, do that, you know, too, because some of it too, for them is self-imposed to a certain extent. So we kind of talk about that. It's like, let's, 
especially with the work from home life, I'm still doing it. It's hard. I have to shut my door to leave my office. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you got to do these like little things to mm-hmm. set like work boundaries. But it's it did become challenging during the pandemic because we're just working where we're living. You know. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and if you if you can't afford an apartment or a home with more than one bedroom, you are sleeping where you're working. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Hello, listeners. As always, a deep thanks to you for listening. And remember, you definitely don't have to work 24 7. Uh, we don't. And we are also so excited to continue this interview. So stay tuned for part two coming to you soon. If you would like early access to full interviews, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash TND podcast. As always, take a look at the show notes for important links. And uh, we are your therapists next door.